0: couple of announcements. First, for those of you who are visiting Riverside or fairly new, you may not know what the acronym RBI means. It means reviving baseball in the inner city, where we invite folk from all around town who may not have the opportunity to play baseball in an organized league to come and do so with us for two weeks. And Jan and her committee run that so well in as many Volunteers in this church—it's hard to believe how many help be a part of that. Over a hundred and some kids are participating in that process, and I, I just wanted to share one thing. Julie Hanley said that she did the devotional last week, and was part of the devotional was to help the kids understand what teamwork was like, and she was using the story of how bees work together to make honey, and it—it found it, she found out that. Many of the kids had never tasted honey, and so you just sort of wanted to. I felt the need. I wish I had gone out and bought a hundred jars of honey, but that's the that's the reality of many of the kids that we are trying to serve in these uh, events like RBI and all the other many ways that we gather together. And it's a, and it's a powerful ministry. This church does a lot in those ways that a lot of us are not aware of. Secondly, you notice the architectural changes in the chancel. We're preparing for the organ installation. In fact, today will be the last day that we have to suffer through the old warhorse digital organ. Uh, next week we will gather in Kissling Hall for worship as this week uh, the floor man will be in sanding all of these floors and then uh, coating them and then polyurethane them, and we should not stand on it for several days. So we'll be out of the sanctuary next week. In Kissling Hall, that should be fun and unusual. So um, you don't need to wear a tie. Uh, I looked down at Chris and saw him with his tie on. It just reminded me, you always look great, Chris, but you, you can leave the tie off next week. I probably won't even wear robes, how's that? So. Um, uh, next week in Kissing, and then we'll be back in the sanctuary, uh, but we will not have an organ until the new one has been installed and tuned and, and is uh, ready to go, which will be in September. We'll be using piano music as we go forth in our worship for the rest of the summer. Hopefully we will be out of uh, back in the sanctuary each week, but uh, we never know for sure, so we'll keep you posted on that. Today's passage comes to us from Paul's letter to the church at uh, Galatia, known as Galatians, the letter itself, and it's written uh, to this church that Paul founded that Paul is not happy with because he feels like they are backtracking on what uh, he taught them to begin with in terms of their amazing gift from God in Jesus Christ, that gift of grace that frees them from all of the constraints that they had lived with all before, trying to determine whether they were good or bad, or in or out. Paul has taught them that they are in by virtue of God's love and grace. That's all that matters. Yet, they start backtracking. And so Paul writes them this really powerful letter about the nature of Christian freedom. It's called the Magna Carta of Christian freedom, this morning's passage from Galatians 5. I'm going to be reading the first verse and then skipping down to the 13th verse if you're reading along. Let me also say that Paul doesn't always practice what he preaches and that this anger of Paul toward the church sort of drove him crazy. And he was considered the most law-abiding Jew ever, but he came to see through this unconditional grace of God that that it wasn't his obedience that saved him, it was God's love. So he starts off with that in mind, but then he sort of loses his place, as we are all prone to do when we start venting. From Galatians 5.1 he writes, For freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For Paul, what he was extending to them is that the yoke of slavery was backtracking on the issue of following the Jewish law prescriptively and particularly as it matters concerning issues like circumcision. Paul is saying to them in his cross examination, whose idea was it? What rogue preacher came into your midst? What charlatan strode up to your church and began preaching to you that you needed to be circumcised in order to be fully embodied in the synagogue. Remember, there were Jews who believed Christ was the Messiah in Paul's age, and the Galatians happened to be Gentiles that were led into the Jewish arena and told that they had to conform to this particular Jewish ritual, not the least of which is circumcision by this other voice. Paul had never told him that. And when he gets through with his venting, this is where he doesn't practice what he preaches. He gets through with his venting with them and then he says, I wish those who had taught you this circumcision lie would castrate themselves. Luckily, Paul did not have access to email and an immediate send button or I'm sure it would have been worse and then he adds in verses beginning in 13th verse of the 5th chapter, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves and servants to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Heard that before? Jesus and others. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the only law that matters. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Ha ha. This is the word of the Lord. I was recently trying to explain the Presbyterian system of government to a friend who has been a Catholic all of his life. And I was pointing out that in the Presbyterian church, because the church itself has had a bad history with those in power, uh, either through government tyranny or church tyranny, that the Presbyterian system of government tries to spread the power out among all of the members of the body. In your church, I said, you have priests and bishops and cardinals and you have the Pope. It's a clear chain of authority and command. It's, it's this vertical process. But as Presbyterians, we have elders and committees and we have presbyteries and committees and we have general assembly and committees and we have committees and subcommittees and we have committee meetings every night and smaller meetings on top of that, we are like this generalized spread of all the power among the congregation. And granted, I said, it may end up looking like the French Revolution from time to time, but mostly it works, especially as it provides a good check against power and tyranny. The problem, I said, however, is that not everyone shares in the same amount of knowledge, yet each person is expected to be responsible with their presence and their vote. Sounds like the present populist movement, my friend said. Then went on, I can't imagine a whole group of people making decisions when they don't have the full amount of knowledge. It's why I think the best form of government, he finished, would be a benevolent dictator. Oh, if only there was such a thing. Wow, like our parents when we were adolescents, I shot back. Exactly, he added, and knowing you as I do and myself, neither one of us were too good at following their laws. We demanded freedom, he said, but we didn't want the responsibility that goes with it. He nailed it. We wanted our adolescent freedom, but we did not want or did not understand the amazing power of responsibility that goes with it. Turns out we as a human lot in our human condition are a strange people. On the one hand we will fight to the death for our freedom and on the other we too easily give it up to charlatans and conspiracy theories that keep us in our adolescent worldview where we don't have to face reality. We want our freedom, but we don't want the responsibility. We abdicate our freedom to someone or some theory that promises the moon, as in Turkey in the new Erdogan's regime, or all over the map these days, giving up our freedom because of the promise of some security and certitude. Those early Christians that Paul is writing to have chosen to give up their own Christian. Freedom because somebody rode into town, as I said, and and claimed that you're not really a good Jew unless you follow the Jewish ritual and rules like circumcision. They gave up their freedom for the sake of security. They are now in the tribe. We see it all the time. Convinced as we are that you must believe in the Bible inerrantly and absolutely to be in the tribe, or you must be in this particular denomination or church in order to be saved, or that you must follow this particular theological doctrine in order to be loved by God. But Paul makes it painfully clear that we lose our real freedom when we give in to such lies. This is what he means by living by the flesh. Instead, he says, live by the spirit. The issue of freedom for Christians comes not by following the rules of the cult or the church or the particular orthodoxy or theologian that you live by. Instead, it is given to us at the end of grace. And this is how faith and grace work. It sets us free from all of those rules. I don't mean by that that we're called to be antinomian, that is to say non-law abiding. I'm going to get to that in a minute. In fact, the law that we're called to live up to is a whole lot heavier and weightier and more difficult than all these ritualistic doctrinal rules that the institution tries to lay on us. It's the golden rule, the law of love of neighbor as you love yourself and it's based on the reality that god has loved us and freed us enough that we are able to love ourselves and our neighbor do unto others what the neighbor what we want our neighbor to do unto us is another way of saying it or in the Jewish way, in the sort of the negativa way, it is, don't do unto others what you don't want others to do to you. In almost every major religion, it turns out, as far as history can remember, this golden rule has been present. Apparently, this rule of love is the ground upon which every stable society has been built. And when we choose not to live by it, our societies teeter and totter and fall. Two senior Trump administration officials last week or the week before were heckled at restaurants. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was told to leave one particular restaurant. The Florida GOP Attorney General Pam Bondi required a police escort away from a movie about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Do you get the irony of that? After activists yelled, yelled at her and her family. In Tampa, two other Republican lawmakers say they were also politically harassed, one of them with her kids in tow. Won't you be my neighbor? Representative Dina Titus of Nevada, Democrat, said in recounting her 2010 loss that Tea Party activists would use bullhorns when she would host Congress on the corner events in front of grocery stores. There was also a lady who followed me around everywhere. She stalked me. I also recall that some of the Tea Party people spit on some of our members as they walked into the House to vote. The alt-right has produced scandalous lies about morally good people while supporting white supremacy, often in the name of God. It has become the custom to call our opponents ugly names on social media, to lie about things in order to get our way, to libel others if, if they are not on our side. And while this is not new to the United States, it has always been true in our government, on some level at least, through our social media and the impersonalization of it, as well as the immediate access to it, it has taken a turn for a new standard of ugliness. Backed up by Twitter, our president has called immigrants rapists, thugs, convicts, and animals. And the fact is that they are more law-abiding than the general population of the United States. I'm not saying that is to say we do not have an immigration problem. We do. The whole world does. Sixty million people are now migrants. After World War II, it was 15 million. We have an immigration problem, but calling them less than human does not help the process. When the president says things like that, he has the right to free speech. He's a citizen, but this kind of use of language for all of us only feeds the frenzy which makes the point that he wants to make. It creates more of a frenzy and feeds the base. And both alt-left and alt-right are equally guilty. Has our free country come to this? Do we really have the freedom to treat people this way? As U.S. citizens, we have the right to boost the press boot the press secretary from our restaurant. We have the right not to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. We have the right to shout at politicians trying to shame them, to protest against speakers at our universities, to counter protest the protesters. We have the right, as did Maxine Waters, the Democratic Congresswoman from California, who said, if you see anybody from the cabinet, in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore anywhere. Well, they started it, she said. In our country, we we may have the freedom and the right to do these things and to say these things. We may have the right to own an AK-47 with bump stocks and 30-round ammunition clips. But as a Christian? No. As a Christian, our freedom is given to us so that we can be free, not from responsibility, but free for responsibility. And the responsibility we're called to be free for is the law of love. Loving your neighbor as yourself. This is our responsibility to ourselves and each other and our world. This was the right given us by Christ and what Paul clearly says in this morning's passage. And if we don't claim this responsibility, the consequences look like our present divided, polarized, ugly, self-righteous world in Washington. We can do better than this. Washington may not, but we as christians following jesus christ can do better than this it is our responsibility someone came up to me recently to confess that the world never looked uh, that he would never look back on on african american people in the same racist way that in itself was a confession after he sent his $100 in and got his DNA test back to show that he was 5% African-American. I love it when science is now supporting what the best part of the Bible already knew, that racism and classism and tribalism, when it devours others, only ends up devouring ourselves. Paul's warning. And when we love others, When we love others as we are wont to be loved, everything that is good grows that much greater, our spirits as well as our souls, as well as our whole society. It could be a whole other sermon about what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I mean simply to say that we will make for our neighbors the same rationalizations that we make for ourselves. I was tired. Well, they could have been tired. I was busy. Well, they could have been busy. I was having a bad hair day. Well, they could be having a bad day. To make the same rationalization for our neighbor that we make for ourselves at least is the beginning of what it means to treat our neighbors as ourselves. But it is, of course, more than that, too. It is to treat our neighbors the way that God has treated us. Completely, fully, unconditionally loving us. As hard as it is, even Paul couldn't do it, even in his letter about doing it. And what it means is to become free, finally, free and responsible from all that dramatic baggage that we carry around that Feeds our own little egos and self righteousness to be free from that, finally, of all that junk to love like emotionally and spiritually mature adults in the way God created us to be. What good is it to be free? if it's not a freedom to become what we were set free to become in the first place, to learn how to love, to learn how much we are loved, may we use our freedom wisely.